Chris, coming to you from a very strange hotel room in Amsterdam where I'm working at a conference, so I'm on my portable little recorder again, and there's going to be no interview segment this episode. I'm just going to go through a bunch of links that intrigued and interested me the past week. Let's get started. So firstly, in, um, I guess we could call this privacy news, maybe? Um, two articles in this sort of subject area are not necessarily connected. Actually, no, no, no. Three articles, I think. Three articles, I think, I can connect together this week. The first is um, an interesting one from the next web. And actually, uh, the article links to another article. And I sort of recommend you look at both to get a little bit of background. And this is an article by Hamlet Batista called Adblockers Threaten Digital Markers' Ability to Understand Customers. And this interested me because it's hard to really know how to take it. Um, ad blockers, a lot of people use because ads have just sort of gone too far, I guess. And uh, they take up too much weight on the page, they're too invasive, they follow you around the internet, etc. But, you know, they also help a lot of people uh, understand what we read. Uh, there's sort of two different sorts of ad blocker, I guess. Um, ads and then also trackers around content and things like that. And I, I found this article interesting because it's like this, please think of the marketers, right? I guess most people care less about a marketer. But and, and, and in all honesty, the article is still very much, it's, it's very, from a from a reader or a consumer, it's still kind of hard to really see, well, why should I care? But it's kind of interesting, I suppose, just to think about the the some of the aspects of blocking information in that we've got you're actually used to tailored content and by blocking everything, it's hard to tailor that content. Is that good? Is that bad? Well, I guess this is a faceted conversation, but it was interesting to see this perspective from uh, other professionals' uh, perspective, I guess. Um, have a read and make up your own minds. It's hard to quite understand what the agenda is, but it's interesting to think about. And following up that kind of going to the the other end of the conversation, I guess. Um, this was an article from John Norton in The Guardian. The goal is to automate us. Welcome to the age of surveillance capitalism. Surveillance capitalism is a term that has been... Um, I'm not 100% sure who coined the term, actually. I thought it was um, Errol Balkan, but then maybe uh, others have coined it before he did. Who knows? But this book... Um, is an interesting book. It's based on it's an article based on a book by uh, Shoshana Zuboff, which um, covers surveillance states, I guess, through history. And this is always interesting because we tend to think that um, what we're doing at one particular time is new, whereas actually often we are just doing the same things in different ways and I suppose the one difference this time is that digital technology gives us so much potential for surveillance, whereas it has happened before. And uh, the book kicks off in one of my fascinating, most fascinating points in history around the invention of the printing press and the Reformation, which are sort of, in my mind, almost the first historical challenges to a modern, to create and a modern democracy because you challenge the establishment in the way of the Catholic Church and the printed book lets the message spread and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting article sort of based loosely around this book, I guess. Uh, you can go and find this book too. 
The book and thus the article covers some sort of momentous times in history, some of the naivety of some engineers behind some of these companies like Google just deciding it would digitise every book without ever really asking uh, if this was a good idea to the book owners, to, to society. Facebook with its beacons that seemed like a good idea and then we sort of realised very quickly that they weren't and were these um, intentionally malevolent ideas or were they just naive engineers kind of thinking of something cool <laughs> and it's always hard to know, I suppose. Yeah, and then there's an interview with the the writer in the same article. Um, and I would highly recommend if you're interested in knowing a little bit more about the subject to have a read and maybe pick up a copy of the book. And then finally in this section, um, it's actually an article by a friend of mine, Kathy Reed on opensource.com. Um, challenges in open source voice interfaces and why this all ties together is because voice interfaces the voice assistants that we've all come to know and love or loathe depending on our perspective do rely on kind of uh, not only connecting to a lot of central services but tracking a lot of information about us in the short term or the long term so they can have a meaningful uh, discussion with us and this is challenging in open source or disconnected decentralized uh, voice assistants because where does information go? What do you do with it? Um, do you store it? Do you monetize it? Do you track it? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And um, there are some uh, some options in this space, especially Mycroft, who are actually currently funding at the moment. Um, so have a look into that if you are interested. Which is probably the most um, well known uh, open source voice assistant interfaces. But there's a few others that. And the article also lists as well. So you could build your own stack. But I guess the problem there comes is that the stack doesn't learn because it's, well, it's a personal stack. It doesn't learn in aggregate. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting um, problem, actually. And I have met a few people trying to create open source decentralized voice assistants. And none have been massively successful so far. They're mostly just the... Uh, proprietary centralized ones. So obviously a trend that's worth following. Next, I'm going to have a couple of articles in sort of history of tech. Um, first, I think last episode, I uh, highlighted an article on the death of RSS. Actually, maybe it was a couple of episodes ago. But that um, article originally referred to a blog um, called 2-Bit History. And I decided to delve into this blog. And I would actually really love to to get the author on for an interview at some point in the near future because there's a wonderful trove of um, articles there about uh, periods in computing history. And I've been working my way through quite a few. <laughs> this is a topic that interests me quite a lot. Uh, but I, I picked out two for this episode that I'd like you to have a look at. The dawn of the microcomputer, the Altair 880, the first kind of still a hobbyist machine that people had to assemble and figure out themselves, but an affordable machine that people could program and do somewhat meaningful applications with. And most cool in this is actually uh, instructions in the article on how to build, well, not how to build, how to acquire your own Altair emulator that you can play around with and attempt to understand. But if you want a little delve into where kind of home computing began, then I recommend you have a look at this article. And in a similar vein, also from the same blog, is uh, one where Vim came from, Vim, the infamous text editor. And I think the, the, the take-home I get the most out of this article is sometimes the, the, the long history behind something that you think may or may not be relatively modern, but even then it has a long history back behind that. 
standing on the shoulders of giants, giants that have eclipsed other giants, etc., etc. Um, and it also helps explain some of the esoteric kind of ways that Vim is used and where they came from, you know, the, to do with keyboard layouts from the past and and the way that people used to interact with computers vis-a-vis the Altair and things like that. So it's a really interesting article. A little bit lighter in this area. So the Mac actually turned 35 in the past week or so. Um, and there's an article on the ZDNet from Liam Tong where uh, he talks about um, AMS Advanced Mac Substitute Emulator for Linux, Mac OS and Android where you can... Um, run actually some uh, old macOS applications. I love stuff like this just to play around. I used to own a Mac Classic up until relatively recently. Um, and it's a mate, it still works. <laughs> it's quite limited, but still works. So if you felt like a trip down memory lane, then um, have a look at this article, download the emulator, and um, yeah, maybe revisit your childhood or maybe revisit your parents' uh, life. <laughs> and... Uh, Finally, in the history, I uh, think I covered something similar a few, maybe a year or so ago, but it it's reared its head. The topic has reared its head again in a different format. This is an article on Ars Technica from Stephen T. Wright on the Linux of social media, how LiveJournal pioneered then lost blogging. Um, I think I covered um, an article in the past that uh, talked specifically about more recent history of LiveJournal, what happened to it, in that it actually got bought by a Russian company. It became and remains very, very popular in Russia. And none of the original uh, creators, I don't think, are involved anymore. But this uh, this article was uh, started because of a momentous occasion in uh, Life, Life Journal's history that George R. R. Martin, the author of the Game of Thrones book, was actually still microblogging or publishing on it up until uh, um, last April. And um, this was kind of almost the final nail in the coffin for many people. Um, and this article goes back a bit to look at where Live Journal came from, its ideals, what happened to the founders and to it. Uh, and it's an interesting uh, little trip down memory lane into you know, a platform that was very, very popular for a period of time and very ahead of its time. I used to use it. I think I probably still have a lot of posts on there, actually, God, if I'd want to read them. I was very angsty at the time. Um and what went wrong, um, how things changed. And yeah, I don't know if any of you remember LiveJournal, but even if you don't, then it's always interesting to see what came before, as we just talked about with the Apple Mac 2. And in my miscellaneous section, uh, first there's an article from Sophie Charara on Wired, Meet the Chinese phone brands vying to be the next OnePlus. I think this is this intrigued me because there's a lot of brands here I've never heard of. A lot of them owned by companies who you might have heard of or you might have heard of the other brands like um, Oppo, who I think own OnePlus, but also own other brands too. So you're kind of buying from them no matter who you may think you're buying from from. Um, also, not Oppo, BKK. BKK Electronics is a kind of holding brand for a lot of these uh, sub-brands. And there's a whole list of phone companies um, you may or may not have heard of and the phones they make. And some of them are very high spec and look familiar or don't look familiar. I think the era where China is starting to not just copy uh, other vendors but actually innovate in itself is coming. Um, I don't know how many of these are possible to get hold of because some of them look, and these are obviously all Android phones, look quite nice. 
but I don't exactly know uh, if they're easy to get hold of in Europe or the US. Or if you'd want to, I actually ended up stopping using my Huawei because I, well, Huawei has a whole other reputation, but I don't know if I'd necessarily trust any Chinese brand any more or less than Huawei. Um, but even just for some uh, render, screen renders here of hardware configurations that you don't often see uh, on Western-designed phones, um, have a look. And finally, finally, in the finally section uh, is an article on TechCrunch from Anthony Ha about Scribd. Um, I subscribed, I, oh, this is a hard sentence to say, I subscribe to Scribd. It's a sort of book, magazine, audiobook platform, uh, $9 a month. And I really like it. As long as I read one book a month, it's worth it. I read one book and usually listen to one book a month. It has a lot of books I want to read. Uh, not everything tends to lean a little more on the non-fiction side, but that's okay with me. And uh, this was just a, a sort of financial report from Scribd saying that it's doing very well. Thank you very much. Um, it's bringing in $100 million in annual recurring revenue. Um, it has, where's the number? It has... 1 million subscribers, which is small, but enough. It's growing. It's been profitable since 2017. And that's all pretty amazing, really. It's actually, uh, it's nice to hear of a tech company doing well, sustainably, not kind of shooting for these huge growth metrics that usually end up killing a company. And that the idea of a subscription of books works. Um, and that the industry is receptive as well as the consumers. Uh, this isn't an advert. I'm not going to suggest that you um, go out and um, <laughs> get a subscriber account just because of my hearsay. But still, it appealed to me because I am a customer and the company seems to be doing quite well. And that's it for this weekly squeak. I'm traveling quite a lot at the moment, so it may be that you catch me somewhere. Uh, depending when this is published, I'll be at FOSDEM in Brussels in the first weekend of February. Then I'll be in the UK for a little bit, sort of family and friends, and I'll be off to Denver in Denver, unsurprisingly, from the 13th of February if you happen to be there. So if you want to meet up, I'm more than happy to meet up and we'll have a chat. If you have enjoyed this brief show, you can find previous shows at christianchiller.com slash podcast. The new website is nearly ready. In fact, it's online. I pushed myself by pushing it online. It's not completely done, but there anyway. Um, and you can also find my contact details and ways you can support my work there. You can tweet at me at Chris Chinch. And wherever you found this podcast, please rate, review, share, help spread the word. Uh, and if you um, also subscribe to the newsletter or you don't subscribe to my newsletter, there's a newsletter that accompanies this podcast every week, which you can also find details of on my website. And very soon I'm going to be having my new newsletters and podcasts start. I think when I get back from traveling, I will get on with these. So stay, um, stay subscribed to whatever medium you're following to keep up to date with all those. And if you have been, thank you very much for listening. Yeah.